First Timothy chapter 6. Uh, just as by way of reminder, you guys should know this by now if you've been coming. First uh, Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul. It is a letter to Timothy. Timothy has been left in charge of the church. The church is there in Ephesus, and Paul's giving Timothy some instructions. We've, we've watched as we've studied through 1 Timothy, he's, he's told Timothy how to deal with the men in the church. He's told Timothy how to deal with the women in the church. He's talked about the qualifications for the elders or the overseers or the pastor. He's talked about the qualifications for deacons, those that are just serving in the church. He's talked about how Timothy should act as a pastor, especially when it comes towards older men. He talks about how the church should respond or how the church should treat widows. He talks about how uh, the, the compensation for elders and pastors, uh, what to do if there's an accusation against an elder or a pastor, what to do, uh, how, you know, what do we look for in ordination before a pastor is ordained, and he tells him to not lay hands on him too quickly. And this morning, in the first two verses of chapter 6, we're going to pick up as Timothy continues, as Paul continues this thought, and he's this morning he's going to address in these first two verses bond servants, bond servants, which were slaves. So let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited, are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Now, before you jump to a conclusion and say, look, the Bible's condoning slavery, I want you to understand something. Back in 1 Timothy uh, chapter uh, chapter 1, I believe it was, Timothy actually talked about, he said, he talked about for kidnappers or for men pleasers in chapter 1 verse 10, how that was unrighteous. So he's not condoning slavery in a sense, but what he's saying is slavery is existent in the population, it's existent in the culture. And slavery, when our mind thinks of slavery, we think of somebody being mistreated, but in the Roman culture, that wasn't always the case. Slaves could own, own things, slaves could accommodate or could, uh, could accumulate wealth, slaves could have different portions or different levels within. Slaves, a lot of slaves were free by the time they were age of 30, and if they did become a Roman slave when they became free, they would then be a Roman citizen. So people would actually put themselves in slavery, put themselves in bondage for a period of time because of the benefit they received. And that's true even today. There's a lot of slavery around the, around the world. Some people will do it because, they, because they're going to receive a benefit from it. They're going to be taken care of. They're going to be fed. So what Paul's saying here is he said, listen, for these, for, and, he, and he's speaking to bond servants, he's speaking to slaves, and there's an interesting culture mix taking place. What you have is a church filled with masters and slaves. There's not a separate slave church here, so Paul's addressing the fact that in church you might have a master and a slave sitting right next to each other. It was even possible for a slave to be a pastor of a church and have, or a leader of the church and have the master sitting in his congregation. So what Paul is addressing here is he's saying, listen, for the bondservants, for the slaves, if you are under the yoke, and that means if you have an unbelieving master, if your master is unbelieving, if you're under the yoke, count your masters worthy of all honor. So just because you have an unbelieving master, you still need to honor your master. You still need to perform the duties that are required of you. You still need to do those things that are required of you. Why? Because he deserves it? No, not that. that's not the case at all. So that the name of God... The name of God and his doctrine and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. As Christians, and we can relate this to ourselves as we really don't live in a culture with slaves and masters, but what we do live in is a culture with employees and employers. 
We have employees and we have employers. Maybe you're an employer. Maybe you can be both. You can be an employer and an employee. So when it comes to this section of scripture, I think it's fitting that we apply it to ourselves this morning from the employee and employer relationship. So what he's saying here is for those of you that have unbelieving bosses, for those of you whose bosses who don't really believe, honor them. Count them worthy of honor. Let them see God in your life by the way that you're treating them. If you have an unbelieving boss and he or she knows that you're a Christian, you should be such a good worker that they want more Christians to come work for them. It shouldn't be a disqualification. You should be such a good worker. They should say, do you have any more friends in your church that are looking for jobs? Do you really? We need more people like you. And they don't even believe, but yet because you're working, we're not working really for them, are we? We don't work for our bosses. Who do we work for as Christians? We work for the Lord Jesus Christ, for our God and our, for our creator. You see, when you work for the boss, when the boss turns his head, what do you do? You quit working, right? When the boss looks at you, you start working again. If the boss takes a day off, ha, it's like a day off at work. That's not the way that it should be. Not for Christians. That's what Paul's saying. We should be the same. We, we should be the same worker whether the boss is looking or whether the boss is not looking, whether the boss is here or whether the boss is not there. We should be the same worker because we're not really working for our earthly boss. We're instead, we're working for our heavenly father. But there was also another problem in verse 2, and those who have believing masters. You see, some of you might, have be, might be employees that have a believing boss. And he says this, let them not despise them because they are brethren but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. So what Paul's telling Timothy is, listen, for those slaves, for those employees, for those people that have a believing boss, don't take advantage of that. Don't take advantage of them for that purpose. That means don't sit there, don't come to work at 9 o'clock in the morning and then open up your Bible and you're going to do morning devotions from 9 to 9.30 and maybe you're going to take an extra long lunch because you want to spend time with the Lord and, and they'll understand because they're a believing boss. No. Do your devotions before you get to work. The same principle applies. You should be working your tail off for the boss because you're not really working for the boss. You see, you can see how that, would, that could stumble somebody. You, should, you can see how as, as a slave, as somebody coming underneath of a master, they could expect special treatment. If your boss is a Christian, do you expect some sort of special treatment? Do you expect, well, there's, there's a, there's, I, I want to go away to a conference. I want to go do this. I want to take a day off. And it's for the Lord, so they'll understand Hopefully they will understand, but you also need to understand if they can't approve that, that you're still going to be required to do your work as unto the Lord, that you're still required to work as though Jesus is standing right next to you because he is, right? He is with us. He is right there with us. And he tells Timothy at the last part of verse two, teach and exhort these things. He says, Timothy, I want you to teach these things and I want you to encourage people to do these things. And what things is he referring to? Everything that he's taught previously in the book. Everything that he's taught all the way through the book of 1 Timothy. I want you to teach these things, Timothy. Here's your, here's your lesson plan, if you will. When it comes to teaching the church, these are the things that are important. This is the household of God. Should, this is how the household of God is going to operate. It's very, very important to you, Timothy. I want you to understand it. And then he picks up in verse 3. And he says... If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. If anyone teaches otherwise, why would he say this? 
because he knows people are doing it, because people are teaching otherwise, and they don't consent to wholesome words. That means sound words. That means healthy words, wholesome words, especially the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine or the teaching which is in accordance with godliness. You see, what Paul is instructing Timothy here is he's saying, listen, we are followers of Jesus Christ, and it is important that we live a godly life. Godliness means godlikeness. Previously, in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul told Timothy, reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself to godliness. Begin working out, trying to, to be more godly, to be more godlike. It became something extremely important to them, godliness, godliness. Paul is saying, listen, if someone's rejecting that, and really what he's saying, let me just see if I can kind of sum it up to you, make it easy to understand. He's speaking against those people that acknowledge the Lord with their mouth and deny them with their lifestyle. He's speaking against those people who would claim to be Christians, followers of Christ, but there's no evidence of that on their Facebook page. There's no evidence of that in their Twitter account. There's no evidence of that in their home. There's no evidence of that hanging on the wall. So what he's saying is to telling Timothy, Paul, or Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, godliness is going to have an impact in somebody's life. It's going to change the way that you live. I wrote down this definite definition for godliness. It's this, respect for God that affects the way a person lives their life. It's holding God in such a high esteem, holding his word in such a high esteem that it changes the way that you live your life. We've all met Christians. We've all met people who claim to be Christians. They go to church, they accept Jesus, and nothing changes in their life. Maybe the change is slow. But if you are a follower of Christ, you have to be able to look back and say, my life is changing. I am becoming more godlike. I am becoming more godly. But this is more than just becoming. This is, I'm setting a goal for myself. You see, let me ask you this question. What's your goal in life? What's your life goal? What is it that drives you every day? What is it that, you get out of bed in the morning, what is it? Is there, is there something that drives you to get out of bed, to go to work? To, what, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? We're going to see for some people a little later this morning, it's wealth. They're looking for wealth. They want to make money. They want to live for comfort. They want to live for luxury. That's their goal. That's what's driving them. And Paul is telling Timothy, no, no. Timothy, as Christians, because Christians, my goal, your goal, it needs to be godliness. When's the last time we thought about that? When's the last time you said, am I living a godly life? Is there something I can change? When's the last time you went to the Lord in prayer and said, Lord, is my life godly? Is there something in my life that needs to change? Is there something that needs to be rooted out? In my walk with the Lord, he's changed lots of things in my life. It doesn't always happen overnight. It's a little bit here, a little bit there. It's as you begin to go, say, God, what do you want me to change? He'll change this. He'll take it away from you. And then next week or next month or next year, God, you've been doing this thing. And you, know, you think that if you get rid of this one thing in your life, then you'll be okay. But that's not the way it goes. You're going, he's going to continue to refine you for the rest of your life. The long as you live, there's going to be things in your life that need to be changed. Maybe it's a thought. See, I thought when I got rid of all the outward, you know, blatant sin in my life, I'd be good. Then I'd be a good Christian, right? Then I wouldn't have any more problems. But then they started to work on my mind. And what a mess that can be. Don't laugh. Your mind's just like mine. You think things. Imagine if you said everything you thought. It would be a mess. And God says, I don't want you to think those things. I want you to change those things. I don't want you to think that about this person, your spouse, your husband, your wife, your friend, your coworker, your boss. I want you to change the way you're thinking about them. 
And it takes time as he works through that. He says, if anyone teaches otherwise, they don't consent to these wholesome words, these healthy words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords or which is in accordance with godliness. Here's what, here's what Paul says about them. If someone doesn't agree with living a godly life, maybe, maybe you're here and you go, well, I don't really think it's important to live a godly life. As long as I prayed the prayer, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. Here's what Paul says about you. He says, you're proud, you know nothing, but you're obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicion, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. And suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So notice what he says. He says, listen, if you're that person, if you're that person who, who says godliness, a godly life is not that important. And unfortunately, it's kind of hard to tell in our culture sometimes who's living a godly life and who's not, isn't it? Because it gets intermixed. It gets intertwined. We live in a culture where we, we have a lot of wealth and we can buy things and we're being told what we need to buy. And it, it, becomes, it becomes intermixed. But what does it look like? Paul says, if you don't think there's a need for a godly life to be, to be godly, he says, you're proud. It's all about you. It's all about you. You're proud. He says, you know nothing. You know nothing. But you're obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. You ever met anybody like that? They just want to dispute. They just want to argue. A lot of times it's in the church. Somebody will come into church and they have a certain doctrine that they've kind of studied and they believe and this is the thing that I believe and I want to make you believe what I believe. So our whole conversation, our whole fellowship is me trying to sway you into an argument so that you'll believe what I will believe. And maybe you don't believe and then we start arguing back and forth. Don't waste your time arguing with people. It's really not worth it. Someone who's really seeking truth, teach them what the word of God says. But someone who wants to argue and who wants to dispute, it's, it's, it's a waste of time. You're not going to change their mind and they're hopefully not going to change your mind if you're standing on the word. He simply says, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes, arguments, from which come. You have the argument, what happens? Envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicions. Oh, they must be up to something. What's their end game? What are they trying to get? Always suspicious. They're up to something. What not new good are up there? Just trying to change something. They're just trying to change something. Destitute, oh, oh, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. I don't know about you, but it's the truth that I want to seek. It's the truth that's going to change my life. It's the truth that's going to matter to me. I'm not interested in man's opinion. I'm not interested in the, man, the book that man wrote about the Bible. I want the word of God. Not that we can't get good, healthy books to teach us what the Bible says, but there's a lot of times you can walk into a Christian bookstore and you'll get life application books that will tell you all about life and they're filled with modern psychology and psychiatry, and they have nothing of the Word of God. I, the first thing I do when I pick up a book is I look and start thumbing through, are there Bible verses in there? Are there Bible verses? Are they referring to the Scripture? Or is there something in there that, where can I go back and see? I look at the, look at the table of contents. What are they talking about? Does it, is, it, is there a scriptural basis for it? If there's not, do I really care what their opinions are? Do I really want to, as a, as a follower of Christ, do I want to follow modern psychology? Do I want to follow, not that these things aren't, can be useful, but do I want to, that, is that where I want to get my, my learning from? No, not for me. Not for me. Paul would uh, tell Timothy, he would say, who suppose that these people, he says, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. What does that mean? It means they're using the church, they're using Christianity for financial gain, 
for to gain power, to gain position. They're using it. They're trying to gain something for it. They, they're, they're, they come to Christ. They come to the church because they want to get something. It's something to offer to them, and they want to be able to gain. Very commonly, Christianity is presented today on the basis of what you will gain by following Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Very commonly, we present Christianity today. Come get saved. Come follow Jesus. And you will have eternal life. You will not burn in hell. You, but you know what? While that's an okay reason to come, you, very, you better very quickly understand that's not why to stay. Because if you came for what you will get, you will sadly be disappointed when the first trial rolls around. You see, personal success and a happy, happiness, a stronger family, a more secure life, these things may be true when you come to Christ. But we must never market the gospel as a product that will fix every life's problems. Just because you follow Jesus Christ doesn't mean you're going to get wealthy. I don't care how many hankies you buy off television. I don't care how many bottles of holy water you buy. I don't care how many dollars you send in and seeds of faith you plant. You may not get wealthy over it. It just may not happen. But yet that's somebody who's using the gospel for, for gain. How do you explain a TV pastor who, has $10 million, who lives in a $10 million house? How do you explain those things? Is, is that Well, Rob, they wrote books. They have big churches. They certainly are entitled to that, really. I thought we're supposed to be more Christ-like. I don't see Christ living in a 10 million. Well, what, what's acceptable? What's not? I don't know. That's, a one on, that's an individual basis. But I got to tell you, I wouldn't want to live in a $10 million house with money that I took out of the offerings for a church and have to explain that to God someday. People gave God money and then somebody can then misuse that and apply it to a house or to a lifestyle, a lavish lifestyle. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not speaking against wealth. Because there are many wealthy men from David to Solomon to Abraham throughout the scriptures. But what I'm speaking of is when somebody especially comes into the ministry and they want to gain financially out of what the people are giving to God, I have a problem with that. And I don't think it should happen. I think that if a pastor is completely supported by the ministry, he should live like the rest of his congregation does. Basically, the same standard. It shouldn't be above. It shouldn't be below. There's a lot of pastors who have other jobs, other businesses, and they, they, that's fine. What you do on your own is up to you. But Paul's saying here, when he says, he says suppose that God, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain, look what he says, from such withdraw yourself. You see, Paul is going to begin to focus on godliness here. We're going to see it next week when we look at verse uh, 11. And this godliness, and I want you to remember, godliness is the respect for God that affects the way a person lives their life. Respect for God, the, for the, the, respect for God that affects the way that you live your life. Do you live, do you have a desire, is it your goal to live a godly life? Not saying you won't make a mistake. Not saying you won't blow it. But is it your plan when you wake up in the morning to, have a God, to live godly today? To live a holy life set apart today? You see, for a lot of us, it doesn't even cross our minds. It's something that we don't really think about till Sunday morning, and we've got to clean ourselves up and come to church. But that's not the case. That's not the way that it should be. It should be every day that should be our heart is to live a godly life. Now, it says in verse 6, but, or now, King James says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. 
What Paul is saying, he's saying those who are taking the gospel, they suppose that godliness is a means of, of, of gain. Godliness isn't the gain, but he says godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul knew this type of contentment firsthand. He explains it to us in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am. I've learned whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Godliness, godliness is not tied to our physical life. It's tied to our spiritual life. Contentment isn't tied to our physical life. It's tied to our spiritual life. Godliness is only true gain when it is independent of our circumstances. It has to be independent of our circumstances. It has to be, they're not connected. They're not connected in that way. Godliness with contentment is great gain or great wealth. You see, they're looking for wealth through godliness and through trying to, through the gospel, where they're going to find it is in contentment. Oh, contentment. Are you content? Are you content where you're at? Are you content with your health? Are you content with your financial situation? Are you content with your house? How about your car? How about your spouse? Are you content this morning? Or, do you, do you, or, or is it something in us that wants to look around to everything else? You see, contentment's difficult, isn't it? We live in a culture that always tells us we need something. We live in a culture that wants to sell us something, wants to tell us we're missing out on something. We need a vacation. We need this. We need that. Every time you turn on the the news or the radio or the TV or pick up a newspaper, there's an ad. Advertising. Why do they advertise? Because they want you to buy it. Why do they want you to buy it? So they can get rich. They're selling something. Nobody's doing it for free. Nobody's doing it for for nothing. they They want you to buy something. It's essential. Contentment is essential and it's difficult. Why is it so difficult for us? I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. Number one, we usually desire far more than we actually need, don't we? We usually want far more than we actually, you know, even when it comes to our needs and our wants, you know, we can make our needs. We, we have a way of justifying those things. Well, I need a cell phone, right? Because somebody needs to get in touch with me. I need this, I need that, and I, I need this. And we can, we can justify our needs, but what do we truly need? Our consumer culture tells us we always need more, doesn't it? Always need more. Every time you pick up a, you, you watch a TV show and you find out that your marriage should look like the one on television. You, watch, you pick up a book, you pick up a magazine that tells you it's filled with, it's filled with uh, advertising. It's always telling you something you need. You need this perfume. If you brush your teeth with this, you'll look like her or him. If, if you eat this, then you'll look like the model on TV. It's filled with that and we believe it. We buy it. You know how much money that we spend on the diet industry and the things, just the selling, all the stuff we buy because we need it. If you're buying stuff late at night on TV, you're missing it. Those infomercials, you don't need it. You're not going to get rich buying the real estate program. The only person getting rich with the real estate program is the guy that's selling it to you. Because I promise you, nobody will sell you real estate with no money down. Very rarely. Although he tells you that he has all these deals done and we go, okay, I'll try it. I'll send $49.95. Well, he just made 50 bucks. And it's going to go in your closet on the top shelf, and someday you're going to work this program that you paid $50 for in the middle. In the meantime, he's headed off to the bank with a pocket full of money because everybody else that couldn't sleep that night did the same thing. Why? Because they wanted to get rich. Because their goal was what? Wealth. 
I want wealth. I want comfort. I want, and Paul says, no. Our goal as Christians needs to be godliness. It needs to be, we need to be focused on, on God. Our contentment, it only comes when our heart is rooted, grounded, buried in eternal things. That's where you're going to find contentment. You will never be content looking at the things of the world. You're not going to find it in the house. You're not going to find it in a spouse. You're not going to find it if you have kids. You're not going to find it if you get a new job. You're not going to find it if you move to a new city. You're not, going to, you're not going to find it anywhere in the world, in anything the world has to offer. You will only find it in, if your heart is rooted, rooted in Christ, rooted in eternal things. It doesn't exist anywhere else. And there's a reason the Lord tells us it doesn't exist anywhere else, because he knows he created us. You see, what will happen is people will follow their flesh to achieve their goals, to achieve the wealth, to achieve the house, to buy the thing, to do the thing, to accomplish the thing, and you're never going to be content. Let me tell you the secret. You, know, you won't find it in, in buying a motorcycle or a sports car, but let me tell you the secret. If you're content in eternal things, then you will have the ability to enjoy those other things like you never have before. You see, I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying don't have these things. Don't, I'm not saying don't have a nice house, don't have a motorcycle, don't have a sports car. Don't, you know, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is you won't find your contentment in there. What I'm saying is you find your contentment in the things of eternity, the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are blessed with those things, then you can enjoy them to a level you never understood before. Because what happens if you're buying, if you're looking for your contentment in that thing, you will never be happy with that thing. It'll always need an upgrade. It'll always need this. It'll always need that. It'll need to go a little faster. It'll need to look a little shinier. It'll always need something. But if it's, if it's eternal, if your contentment's in eternal, you're going to look and go, Lord, you blessed me with this thing. You blessed me with the motorcycle, the car, the house, the boat, the whatever it is. You blessed me with this. Thank you, Lord. And you're going to be, in, to be able to enjoy it like you never thought possible. So Paul says to him, godliness with contentment is great gain. And look, he still tells us why. Verse 7. He says, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Real simple. You came in naked, and you're going out naked. That's the way it happens. I have never seen a hearse hauling a U-Haul to the graveyard. I have never seen it happen, and I, to my knowledge, it's never happened. Nobody says, hooks up their hearse, hooks up their U-Haul to their hearse. When I die, put the, bury me in, the, in my car. Okay, fine, but your car is going to be a bucket of rust in the ground. It doesn't happen. You're not taking it with you. you, you it, just, it says it right here. What you brought in is what you're taking out. Verse 8, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Wow. Food and clothing, that's it? Food and clothing, well, don't we need a house? Don't we, well, we, we, you know, we don't want to rent, we want to buy a house. No. Can we be content with food and clothing? Would that make you content? It wouldn't make me content. I got to tell you, God's working on my heart in that area. Food and clothing, that's it? I should be happy with food and clothing and letting the Lord provide every place for me to sleep every night? I'm coming over to your house to sleep tonight because I don't have a house. I'm giving it all away. No. But you understand the heart is we always think we need more than we really do. He's always, we always have this thing within us. If we could just get one more thing, then it would make us happy. If we could just, see, if we could just get a new car, then it would be great. And that new car smell, and then, ah, it smells good. And then what happens six months from later? It smells like an old car again because you've been driving it for six months. And you need a new car again. It's, that's not the case. We should be content with food and with clothing. And look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich, 
those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Those who desire to be rich. Do you think our culture is filled with people desiring to be rich? Have you looked at the lottery lately? Why do people buy lottery tickets? Because they want to be rich, right? That's, that's why, well, it's, it's a good investment. I'll put a dollar, maybe I'll win, maybe I'll win $50 million. Well, you don't need $50 million. What would you do with it all? You'd go broke like just about everybody else that wins the lottery in a few years. Those who desire, and I want you to notice something. The word for desire, it means to set your mind on, to have passion to increase material possessions. So the word for desire there means I'm setting my mind to be rich. I'm setting my mind to gain wealth. I have a passion for that. I want to accomplish that. I'm, I, this is my, I'm going to achieve this in my lifestyle. You know what the problem with that is? You never have enough. What, what's rich? Well, I, I, let's say I have a job making $35,000 a year. If I get a job making $70,000 a year, then I'll be rich. You won't have any more in your bank account than you do right now. Well, then if I get a job making $100,000 a year, then I'll be rich. No, you won't, because you'll buy a bigger house, you'll buy a new car, it'll all cost you more. Well, I'm going to get a job that makes $500,000 a year. Mm-mm. It's all the same thing. It all, it, all run, it, all, it all works out to be the same thing. If I could only get more money, then I would be rich. But if you had $500,000 a year, that wouldn't be enough. Now you look back, well, yeah, it would. Trust me, it wouldn't. Trust, look, look at the culture, look at the society of the people that are climbing the ladder. They can never have enough because they're looking for it. And again, I'm not speaking against wealth. Because there's much, there's, there's much wealth that is gained properly and used properly. But what I'm saying is this heart, this desire, what Paul is telling us, those who desire to be rich, those people that are buying these things on late night TV, those people that are doing anything possible to be rich, they're trying to get ahead. Look what Paul says. He says they fall into temptation and a snare. You're, those, if that's your heart, if, that's you've, if you've been the one trying to get wealthy, trying to make more, trying to get not content with what I have, he said, you're falling into temptation and a trap. You're being trapped. You're being trapped. You're being put on a proverbial hamster wheel that you're going to spin round and round and round and you'll never be able to get off because you will never have enough. You'll, you're traveling into temptation and a snare. And look what else it says. Into many foolish and harmful lusts. Because once you have the money, you have to figure out what to do with the money. And because the new car, the Mercedes or the BMW didn't make you happy, you're going to buy an airplane or a bigger boat. And that'll make me happy. And you keep following. You're, you're falling into more lust. Look what it says. And this lust which drown men, which will drown you in destruction and perdition. That's what the Bible's saying about those people who set their minds to be wealthy, to be rich. He says, he says this. He goes, you're falling into a trap. You're, you're going to fall into foolish and harmful lust, and you're going to drown in destruction and perdition. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. A root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Notice it doesn't say money is a root of evil. It says, for the love of money is a root of evil. We all need wealth. We all need money. Money is what we trade with. It's what we buy food with. It's what you buy gas with. We all need that. Notice what is the evil. Money is not the evil. The love of the money is, notice it's a root. It doesn't say the root. 
It's part of, it's one part of, the love of money can be one root of evil. There's other things that can be a root of evil as well. It's the root of all kinds of evil, and it's even caused some to stray from their faith in greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So what Paul is telling Timothy to remind the people, to remind the congregation, he says, listen, money, money, the love of money, if that's your goal, if that's where your heart is set, if wealth is your thing, that's what you're pursuing. He goes, you're falling into a trap. It's going to end in destruction. And it may even cause you to stray from the faith in your greediness. How would that happen? Because you begin to worship other things. You begin to worship the things that you're buying. You begin to be self, I'm self-made. I don't need God. I've got everything I need. I, don't, I have all the finances that I don't, I don't need the Lord. What do I need the Lord for? I, I have a nice car. I have the biggest house in the neighborhood. I, have, I live in the best neighborhood. I don't need God. That's what happens sometimes. That's why Jesus would say it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not He can't. Not that a wealthy person can't. But do you know that someone who is poor, and let me clarify poor. I'm speaking of other cultures poor now. Someone who does, because the majority of people in this culture, if you're getting social security disability, you are not poor. You're getting more, more money at seven, $800 a month than the rest of the world is getting. I'm talking someone who wakes up in the morning and says, I don't know where my food is coming from. I don't know if I'm going to eat today or tomorrow or the next day. That's poor. Do you understand their reliance on God is greater than yours? You see, in our country, we rely on the government. If we can't eat, we can't make our move, we, we, need, we need help, we go to the government for help. And that's okay, our government's able to do that for us. But there are parts of this world where the government doesn't step in. And if you don't have enough money to eat, do you know what happens? You die. You starve. Your kids, you can't feed your kids. We say that's appalling. That's not, the world is a much bigger place than the United States of America. When it comes to wealth, the United States of America, we are... I don't know what the statistics say, 95, 98% of the wealth. We are wealthier than 98% of the people in the world. Because most of us, I'm sure, have food, food in our kitchen when we go home today. And if we don't, we can go to the food bank here in town and get food next week or the food pantry over at this church or the food pantry over at that church. It's available for us is what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the wealth in our country is great. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from their faith in their greediness. And notice what else? It's pierced, they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. They've gone after this trail of money. They've gone after this trail of wealth. And they end up being pierced, cut to the heart with many sorrows. That word for sorrows, it means this, a state of emotional anxiety and distress. Great anxiety, great distress, because everything that you have hinges on your finances, everything. If you have money, you have to figure out what to do with it because you don't want to just put it in the bank because, you know, the government only, can, only, only has so much. Well, I'll just put it in the bank. No, no, the government doesn't. It only insures up to so much of your money. If you have more than $250,000 in the bank and you lose it and, there's a, and the banks collapse, you know what happens? Nothing. You lose it. Sorry. It's only good up to this amount. And for some, they go, oh, that's ridiculous. Who would have that much? There's people who, once you get more, you got to figure out, i got to put it in different banks because I get, I get an insurance policy here and a policy here. i got to invest it in this stock, in that stock. And you spend your whole life trying to figure out, what do I do? I take care of my money. I have to do it. And Paul is saying to Timothy, the love of money, if that's the heart, is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from their faith and their greediness. And look at this. They've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Great anxiety 
great anxiety, intense distress, great distress, intense anxiety on what to do with it. Now, again, I want to make myself clear. I am not speaking against wealth, nor am I saying that Christians should be living in poverty. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is the question that I asked in the beginning, what is your goal? What are you living for? What, are, what is the focus of your life? Is it to maintain your wealth? Is it to accomplish retirement? Is it to just get through the next year? Is it just to get through the next week? Or would we be better served as followers of Christ to set our goal and to change our focus to godliness? As a church, could we set our mind and say, you know what? I understand that. Let's take this next week and focus on godliness. Let's do the things that will make us more godly, not the things that will make us more wealthy. Let's, do, let's invest the time in becoming godly and not invest as much time in leisure, not invest as much time in luxury, not invest, because we all have spare time, right? What do we like to do with it? Will we, as a church, look at this section of Scripture and let it just go, yeah, well, that's, that's great for Paul and Timothy, you know, yeah, they really should have paid attention to that wealth thing there, and we're living in a far wealthier generation than they did. Or will we really take this warning to heart to say, you know what? Maybe I have been pursuing wealth. Maybe I didn't even realize it because oftentimes Satan draws you in and you're pursuing something. You don't even realize you're chasing after it until you start to get pierced in the heart, until your anxiety level rises, until your sorrow rises, until you feel like you're drifting away from the Lord. And all of these things start to come up and you go, how did this happen? Well, you changed your, your goal. You changed your mindset. You see, it's my prayer that as a church, we would pursue godliness. We would, we would be people who say, you know what? We understand wealth and we understand the purpose of wealth. And if we're blessed with wealth, we're going to use it for God's purpose. And we're going to be biblical with the wealth that we have. But at the same time, that's not my focus. That's not my goal. My goal isn't to make more wealth. My goal isn't to get richer. My goal isn't to get more power. My goal is to be godly. And you know what? It's a much easier goal. It's much easier. Because if you have to figure out how to make more money next week, you're going to drive yourself nuts. But if you have to figure out how to be more godly, don't you already know how to do that? How would you want to be? Let's say you're here. I want to be more godly. What do I do? Pray. Read the word. Spend some time in worship. Fellowship with other Christians. Come to midweek service maybe. Get the Bible twice in a week. Maybe. Just those are they're easy things to do. It's not that hard. But if you want to pursue wealth, if that's where my focus is, that's where my heart is, that's what I'm chasing after. Paul says be warned. It's going to leave you broken. It's going to leave you anxious. It's going to leave you distressed. And it might even lead you away from the faith if you follow it long enough.